listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Good morning, everybody. My name is Joe. I have the wonderful privilege of being one of the elders here. I want to welcome everybody. I want to welcome all of the college students that might be coming back or coming here for the first time. So welcome. We are glad that you're here. Um, And because many of you have not been here for a while, just to let you know, we have been walking through the book of Luke. So if you want to open up to Luke chapter 9, this is where we're going to pick up our walk. Um, Again, just a a reminder, and and I'll continue to reminder, we're in chapter 9, and we got till chapter 24 to keep reminding you, you know, like, so at at 3 a.m., I can come into your house, and I can say, what's the book book of Luke about? And you'll say, ha, I got that. It's about so that I may have certainty about what I have been taught about Jesus Christ. That is why Luke wrote the book, is he's writing it to Theophilus, but he's also writing it to us, so that we might have certainty about what we have been taught about Jesus. Today in our passage is kind of a pivot point within the book of Luke. So what we've looked at, what we've seen for the first nine chapters, or most of the nine chapters, the first eight chapters for sure, is what we've been seeing is this, the answer to this basic question, who is Jesus? That's what he's been kind of unpacking for us in the, in the first eight chapters of Luke. And today, Peter's going to actually give us that answer in, in as the first human that actually pronounces who Jesus is. Now, immediately following the answer from Peter, Jesus gives a command, and his command is to follow me. So what we're going to find in the next nine chapters, or at least up to chapter about 18, is the many ways that we are to follow Jesus. It's answering the question, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, he's going to answer that for us in the next nine chapters or so. And that begins today. So let me just read the passage that we'll unpack. It's a little bit of a long passage. Uh, We'll get through it. We'll try to keep moving here. Um, But I wanted to to put it all together because I think it it deserves to be be preached together. So we're going to pick up verse 18. Luke 9, picking up in verse 18, says this. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who the crowds say that I am? And he answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, the one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you for singing that song that prepares our hearts to receive your word. Lord, we receive your word to be changed. And Lord, today, this message can can hit pretty hard because Jesus is not mixing words. 
He's flat out telling us, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? No more playing around. No more making it what we want it to be. Jesus lays it out. And this is a good thing. Because there's some wonderful promises that he gives us to why we should want to do what he's calling us to do today. Lord, I pray that you will help us to to see those today. To trust in you and to see that you are the ultimate treasure. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to hang the whole outline today on basically four questions. Some of you that are in D group, or you're going to be kind of familiar with the questions. You're going like, oh, that sounds a little bit like this and a little bit like that. But here's our, the four questions that we're just going to hang the outline on today. And we're going to just walk through the passage answering this, these four questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What does he call us to do? And why should we do it? This is what this passage is answering. It's answering these four Questions. So let's dive in. Who is Jesus? So as the scene opens, we find Jesus praying. And quite often we see Jesus always going back to prayer. He's always spending time with the Father, trying to get strength to do what the Father's will is. And just quickly, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, but wouldn't you think that if Jesus spent so much time praying in order to get strength to to follow the Father's will, that that maybe we need to spend much time in prayer in order to get strength to follow the Word of God? I think we do. We should spend that time praying. We should spend that time seeking Him and spending time with Him because that is where we're going to get the strength to follow Him as He's going to call us to do here in a couple verses. So after praying, Jesus looks at His disciples and asks the question, who do the crowds say that I am? Who are people? What's the buzz about me? What, you know, what, what's going on in Twitter? Who, who are they saying, is, is they're saying about me? And he says, and, and they answer, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So they, they have some answers. People have been saying things to them as they've been traveling from town to town, city to city, and, and doing some miracles and doing teaching and doing different things. There's been a buzz. What are the people believe about me. So what is the word on the street? And the first thing they come up with is, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now we know that these are two different people because we have the entire text, but they're living in the moment. They can't go and Facebook stalk somebody and figure out who they are. Oh, all right, man, Jesus and John, they're two different people, right? They don't have pictures of them. They just hear word of mouth. They hear stories. They move from town to town and they're hearing all this. So some are saying it's John the Baptist, but, but that's not true. Another top vote getter was Elijah. This was largely because of Malachi's prophecy. In Malachi 4 or 5, the prophecy says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. On the basis of this promise, many Jews were waiting for Elijah with eager expectation. In truth, Malachi's prophecy was about John the Baptist and his ministry in preparing the way for Christ, remember when we were talking about John in, in chapter 2, that he's, he's pointing to Christ. His whole job is not to look at me, but I, I'm pointing you to Jesus. That was his whole job, and that's the prophet's jobs. They point us to Jesus. As one of the angels announced near the beginning of Luke's gospel, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. These views are inaccurate. These views that the scuttlebutt, the, the, the crowd, it's like they have this idea about Jesus, but it's, it's a little bit inaccurate. And it's much like the many views of Jesus today, is it not? 
Ever since the Enlightenment, people have tried to make Jesus all sorts of things. Try to make him all sorts of things. Jesus has been called a wandering philosopher. The, the Jesus Seminar movement with Robert Funk and his funky bunch said Jesus was a subversive sage like Socrates or Buddha. Islam says Jesus is a prophet inferior to Muhammad. Scientology, this is a good one. I'll see if I can get this out. Jesus is an implant forced upon a theton about a million years ago. Whatever that means. You have Jesus of pulp culture as he appears in The Simpsons and South Park. We have baby Jesus that Ricky Bobby prays to in Talladega Nights. In most cases, in many cases, Jesus is somewhat pictured in a positive note. But all of these views are inaccurate. They're inaccurate. The truth is, is Jesus is in a category by himself. Who is he? Well, we we find the answer in a surprising place. In the mouth of Simon Peter. Peter speaks first. And the angels hold their collective breath. Because they know Peter. They know Peter's attitude. And they know that Peter would first have to take his foot out of his mouth in order to speak. Because that's usually where his foot is as he speaks in the Gospels. And Peter tells us, who is he? In verse 20, we see this. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You are the, the, the Christ of God. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ of God? Christ is not Jesus' last name, by the way. I, I know that you guys know that, but I just needed to say that. But a title of honor. It is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. To say that Jesus is the Christ, I force to say that he is the Messiah. But what does it mean to be the Messiah? Literally, the Messiah or the Christ is the anointed one. The one who has been chosen by God and consecrated for the sacred office. God declared it at his baptism. We've even seen demons have declared who Jesus is. And halfway through the gospel, halfway through the book of Luke, the first human gets it right. He gets it right. Peter, of all people, gets it right. This was more than a matter of inductive reasoning, however. It was also a matter of faith. So whenever you're looking at passages and stories within the Bible, it's, it's good to look at the, the same account in different places. And we know in one other place, in, in Matthew, that Matthew tells us that Peter said this because God the Father revealed it to him. Through faith. God revealed it to him. And by the way, so we know, this is how anyone comes to know Jesus as the Christ. By studying what he has said and done in the Gospels. And also by supernatural work of God's Spirit. Who alone can reveal his true identity. He's the only one that can take the the veils off our eyes. He's the one that can only make us see Jesus as who he truly is. Yeah, reason is part of it, but it's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again. And then we actually see Jesus for who he is. When people are struggling with the claims of Christ, it is not just mere evidence they need. They don't know 
need more evidence. There's so many people that know so much about Jesus, know so much about the Bible, and completely reject him all the time. It's not about information. It's not about reason. It's about a supernatural power that breaks in, changes their heart, and then they see Jesus for who he is. This is why our prayers for those that are lost, those that are not yet born again, are so important. Because it has to happen supernaturally. I would rather you spend twice as much time praying for somebody than spending learning a way to make a good argument before them. Because that prayer is going to hold more value than your wonderful argument. Because the only way that people see Christ for who he is is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we should be able to give a good argument. We should be able to tell them who Jesus is. We should be able to tell them what Jesus has done in our life. But prayer to change a heart is priority. Again, this is the biblical doctrine of salvation. The word goes out. The spirit changes a heart. The heart is changed. Faith is given and people trust and choose to follow Christ. Only the spirit of God is able to persuade us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Peter has settled it. Who is Jesus? The Christ of God, the Messiah. Well, what did he come to do? What did he come to do? We see this in verses 21 through 22. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah. And the first thing Jesus says is, Do not tell anybody. Isn't that, find that strange a little bit? Like, why is it that, that Peter recognized who Jesus is and Jesus' first thing is says, okay, don't tell anybody. Told all his disciples, don't tell anybody. Why? Well, it's simple whenever you put yourself in their position because Jesus knew that everyone had it in their mind that the Messiah would roll into Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, and sit down on the throne. But Jesus said something quite different, didn't he? He said, I I am a king, but I am king that is going to a cross, not a throne. Now, he'll eventually get to the throne, which we will see, but he's not going to no earthly throne. And see, that's what the disciples would have in their mind. So what does Jesus says he must do? What must Jesus do? What must this Christ do? Well, there's four things. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed and be raised on the third day. That's what Jesus came to do. And it's odd to say, okay, this this king, this savior, he must come to suffer. The son of man must suffer is what Jesus said. And right here at this point, Jesus is bringing two ideas together that have never been brought together in history. Never before has anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah until this moment. The idea that the Messiah could suffer makes no sense at all. Because the Messiah is supposed to come and make everything right in the world and defeat all evil and injustice. How in the world can he possibly defeat evil and injustice by being killed? It's absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous to think this. It's impossible in Peter's mind, in John, and the rest of the disciples. How does this work? This doesn't make sense. Jesus says to them, though, yes, I am 
the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all the evil and injustice that you guys have always wanted me to do. And I'm going to do so not by sitting on a throne, but by going to a cross. By going to a cross. And one thing we should notice about the way this is worded is Jesus doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. He says the Son of Man must suffer. This word is is so crucial because it's mentioned twice. It says the Son of Man must suffer many things and he must be killed. That's God's sovereignty on display. It must happen according to God the Father's will. What Jesus says is not just, I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be changed and renewed, and your life can't be renewed unless I go to the cross. Now, this isn't where it ends, thankfully. This is why we celebrate Easter. Jesus would also be raised from dead on the third day, amen? This, too, was part of the plan. There would be triumph in the end, a crown to follow the cross. There is a crown. It's not an earthly crown. It's a crown that's in heaven. As he he, um, ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And then everything is handed over to him. That's what Colossians tells us. So after the Christ was crucified, he would rise from the dead in glorious splendor, promising eternal life and all the blessings of God in heaven to everyone who believes in him. For everyone who believes in him. Here was the first preaching of the full gospel. Not just that the kingdom and the cross, but also the empty tomb. On the third day, I will rise. On the third day, I am coming out of that tomb. Proving that I am an adequate sacrifice. I am the sacrifice that everybody needs. This is what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. It's what the gospel is all about. It's about what Christ has did on the cross. As he went to the tomb and he came out of the tomb. And he rose on the third day. And he ascended to heaven. And now, right now, as we speak, as I am preaching, as you're listening. He is interceding for each of us that are God's children. He's praying for us. It's pretty amazing. So we've seen who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So what does he call us to do in light of who Jesus is and what he came to do? Well, verse 23 shows us, and he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That is a huge statement. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. There's something that we don't like to do any times because our flesh loves what it wants and, and we tend to yield to it many times. But only with the power of the Holy Spirit can we stop that from happening. Let him deny himself and take up the cross daily and follow me. We already know what the cross means. Jesus said that I must die and I'm going to die on a cross. So Jesus is saying here, okay, we must die to ourselves daily. That's, that's a hard one to swallow. I, I, I said beginning, I, I warned you guys that Jesus is going to shoot straight here. 
The only way to follow Jesus is to follow him to the very death. Every day. Daily. Frankly, here's where we get messed up. This is where we step sideways. Most Christians wish there could be some other way to follow Jesus. An easier way. Right? We, we come to Jesus, or maybe we've, even been, we've been taught to come to Jesus this way. We had hope that Jesus would refrain from making too many costly demands on our lives. That he would endorse the plans we already had for our lives. Right? I just get to embark God and, and put him in my pocket and say, okay, this is what I'm playing and you need to bless me. Or at least that he would let us live for him with as little inconvenience as possible. We said we wanted to follow Jesus. If every person here has ever been in one of those tanks, you said you wanted to follow Jesus. You said publicly that, that God has changed my heart and I'm dying with him, and I'm going to be raised with him. That's what that means. That's why we do that as a public display of what God has done inside of you. And now Jesus is calling for your life. He's calling for you to die to self. Instead of giving up the life that we had, we wanted to find a way to add Jesus to the life that we want. The life that we set out. We've flipped the script. We're still sitting on our own throne instead of allowing God to do so. Allowing Jesus to do so. Spending time praying and seeking His will. Where should I go? What should I do? What will you have for me today? What do you have for me today? See, there is a cost to following Jesus. And it's absolutely worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Let me, let me actually say that a different way. He is worth it. Because see, one day you will be with him for eternity. <laughs> and he is worth it. Because in Jesus there is indescribable joy to be found. Not this joy that, that we, we, we do things here on this planet and we have joy for a little bit and it fades. Then we got to do something else and it fades. Then we do something else and it fades. No, there's an indescribable joy that continues to be fed by the Spirit as we put away the flesh. As John Piper would say, as we kill the stinking flesh. There is indescribable joy to be found. There is deep satisfaction to be felt. Deep satisfaction. You know that angst that you always have within you because you go to this and you go to that and you do this and you do that and you invest in this and you invest in that and at the end of it you just feel empty? Well, it's because you were not made to do that. You're made to glorify Him. And that's the only place we find deep satisfaction. We won't find it in a spouse. We won't find it in children. We won't find it in a career. We only find it in Jesus. And yes, we don't do it perfectly on this side of heaven. But man, as you learn to walk by the Spirit and allow Him to lead you, this satisfaction, man, how much anxiety, how much fear that you walk with day in and day out can be set aside. 
He loves you so much. It's an indescribable joy. It is a deep satisfaction. And what he gives us is an eternal purpose to be fulfilled in dying to ourselves and living for him. Dying to ourselves and living for him. See, brothers and sisters, there's, there is no, what, what some have tagged to be easy believism. It doesn't exist within the kingdom of God. This idea that all you need to do is make a one-time decision for Christ, and you don't have to worry about his commands, his standards, or his glory after making that decision. You just then go and live however you want. That doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. Several weeks back, we, we went through Jesus talking about the different soils. And this is exactly how that plugs into all of that. You now have a ticket to heaven, we think. Hey, I, I said the prayer, or I walked the hour. I'm good. This is a one-time thing. Now I have my ticket. I'm good to go. That's not what Christianity is about. And there is so much more for you to step into. If this is kind of like how you're looking at your Christianity, how you're looking at following Jesus. I think, and it breaks my heart, and and I see it sometimes. It's like, you know, whenever, for whatever reason, you decide to go to the, the amusement park in the end of August when it's 95 degrees and you're walking around and you're dying. And, it, and it's like, you're just like, oh, man, get a drink or stand in line 40 minutes for a six-minute ride. And, it, and it's all fun. And, and when we're young, it's, it's a blast. But when you're my age, you're like, I'm not going to the park anymore. But we're dying of heat. And then we, we, get to the, we get to the place where the, the water slide is or the, the big boat that comes down. And, and the boat comes down and it splashes and you just get a couple little trinkets of water and you're like, oh, that was great. And I think some of us walk with Christ that way. We just get these little droplets. And we say, oh, that's great. And then we go back, as maybe C.S. Lewis was saying, playing in the mud pile, playing in the mud. But we were designed for so much more. There is so much more to step into. And he wants us to step into it. But it must come by dying to ourselves and seeking after him. Seeking after him. In many ways, we answer the question that Jesus asked the disciples in a way that suits ourselves. When Jesus says, who am I? Well, our answer sometimes is, well, Jesus, you are who I made you to be. You are made in my own image. In my image, I've made you. But Jesus says, no, that's not who I am. The word of God says that's not who I am. David Platt says in his good little book, Follow Me, he says this, we pick and choose what we like. And when I say this, and I, sometimes when I pick these things out and you feel like, okay, Joe's about to step on my toes. Well, it, it, God's been jumping up and down on Joe's toes for two weeks. I had two weeks because Eric preached last week. I'm in the same boat, guys. I don't stand here above you. I'm just on a platform so maybe you can hear me better. I am in the fight with you. Walking the same walk. Battling the same battles. 
David Platt said in his book, follow me, we pick and choose what we like and don't like from Jesus' teachings. In the end, we create a nice, non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class American Jesus who looks just like us and thinks just like us. But Jesus is not customizable. He has not left himself open to interpretation, adaptation, innovation, or alteration. He has revealed himself clearly through his word, and we have no right to personalize him. Instead, he revolutionizes us. He changes us through his word and his spirit. What does he call us to do? We are to deny, take up, and follow. This is Christ's own definition of what it means to be a Christian. Deny, take up, and follow. This is the terms of discipleship. The first verb is deny, and what Jesus calls us to deny is ourselves, meaning especially our sinful selves, with all the selfish desires in our fallen nature. The Greek verb to deny is a strong word of negation, that is, this case means to forget oneself entirely, to reject any thought of doing what will please ourselves rather than God. That's a hard life to walk. I've met some people that, that do this far better than me. And it just seems to me like when I look at their lives, it's like, wow, why do they have so much joy? This is why they have so much joy. Instead of gratifying ourselves or indulging ourselves in all the ways our sinful nature desires, we are called to deny ourselves, rejecting anything and everything that will get in the way of offering ourselves for God's service. For God's service. How is he going to use you? How is he going to use you on campus this semester? How is he going to use us if we vote to step into this fostering process? How is he going to use you for his glory, for your satisfaction, and your joy also? See, this is almost exactly the opposite of, what, of the selfish way our culture is always telling us to live. Like everything out there, is, is there to make money. And it's, it is always telling us and, and always telling us that you're not satisfied. You need more. That's, that's the general message. We are constantly invited to get what we want out of life, to pamper our every whim and satisfy our every craving. We get so used to having things our way that when we do not get what we want, when we want it, we get angry. <laughs> and then we lash out to somebody. We have to start the whole process over again. But Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. By doing this, we are following his example. It's not something that he's asking us to do that he didn't first do. In becoming a man, Jesus denied himself the glories of heaven. Remember, he stepped out of heaven to become a man. In fulfilling the law, he denied himself the pleasures of sin. He was sinless. He, he walked the perfect life so that his righteousness could be credited to us so that we can be before God. In dying on the cross, he denied himself protection from pain. Not just physical pain, but remember, the Father rejected him on that cross for our sake. He's not asking you to do anything he has not already done. And by the way, he's not asking us to do anything that through his spirit, we, cannot have the, we do not have the power to do. So the question would be, what things are you accepting for yourself that Jesus wants you to deny? What are you holding on to that is 
He is calling you to give up or give away. Jesus calls you to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow him. And then he gives us three reasons why we should do it. Jesus gives us three reasons that that we can outline with three Ps. The three reasons he gives us all starts with the four statement, four, four, four. But we have a paradox, we have prophet, we have the parousia. Paradox, prophet, and parousia. So the paradox is this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. See, the four, usually when you're reading and you come to the word four, it's usually grounding something that was said above it. In other words, it's saying, here's the reasons why you should do this. Or here's the reason why I said this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Notice that Jesus does not say whoever would lose his life, but whoever loses his life. The case is not theoretical, but factual. Jesus is speaking about something more than being willing to lose our lives. He is speaking about actually giving our lives for him. Why should you want to follow Jesus? So you can truly live. There's an odd statement. Something that, that there is no way to overcome from the pulpit on one Sunday morning. To try to get you to understand that, that you're not truly living in, until you're truly living in his full image. And that happens through progressive sanctification. You go back to the garden. He designed everything a certain way, including us. And sin has busted that and messed that up. And if we're looking outside, if we're looking to the culture, if we're looking to the world, in order to get this life back, it's going to fail us. It's coming to him. It's coming to the word. And as he slowly changes us from one glory to another, we must be willing to lose our lives so we can actually gain the life that he wants to give us. Why should you want to follow Jesus? So you can truly live. And the only way to have real life is by losing it for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. I know that the the predominant thing is be true to yourself and and I must feel good about myself. I get that. I live in the same world that we all live in. But Jesus is calling us out to do something different. There is something greater. What does it mean to to save your life? Well, people who want to save their life in this sense, in the sense that Jesus is talking about, believe that their satisfaction and security are up to them. It's up to me to apply, to establish that, to get that. Thus, we pursue many things in order to do so. And there are many people willing to, to sell us or tell us how to do so. But the thing is, there is a trade-off for all this. Ironically and very tragically, people who want to save their lives, what Jesus says, ends up losing them. The word lost here suggests a total forfeit. You know, kind of like when a ship is lost at sea and everything is lost. So if you're trying to build your own life, save your own life, you will ultimately lose it. But if you give up your life and give it to him, you will gain eternal life, everlasting life. What we lose in seeking our own salvation is absolutely everything, even our very lives. What Jesus means by this is not so much our physical lives, but our spiritual lives. Not just now, but forever. People who follow Jesus and take up the cross of discipleship end up saving their lives. 
He's just calling us to follow him. And what he says is, if we do so, we have a greater gain. There's a greater prize. And the second P is there's a greater profit. There's this everlasting joy with the presence of God. Because what we have decided is this world has nothing for us. And Jesus Christ is everything to us. And that is the prophet. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, there are, are things that are more important than riches, more important than accolades. I mean, Proverbs even says that a good name is to be chosen above riches. Here Jesus is saying that eternal life is better than riches. So do you value your soul? Do you value eternal life more than stuff in this world? In other words, Jesus is saying, you have nothing really to lose. You have everything to gain. And our third P, the third reason Jesus gives is the parousia, which is just a a theological word for the second coming. He says this in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus takes our minds to the future. He's like, okay, look, now, this is, should be all Christians because this is our hope. That, that Jesus is who he says he is. He's done what he's done. We are now saved and one day we will spend eternity with him. In a place where there is no sickness. There is no sin. He turns our mind to the future. To what's coming in the future. Something is coming and happening in the future. Think about this same Jesus who predicted his crucifixion and resurrection is also now predicting this to come. And it will come. Jesus says the crucifixion and resurrection happen, so we have every reason to believe that this next event is going to happen. He will come again. Why should we follow Jesus? Because we will stand before him one day. Somewhere in my readings over the last two weeks, I read this thing. The chances of a kid becoming a pro athlete is 0.02%. But the chances of standing before a holy God is 100%. We should prioritize accordingly. We should prioritize accordingly. We should prepare accordingly. Those who look forward to the coming of Jesus, we look forward to it with the great anticipation But for those who are not in Christ, will look upon that day with dread. Jesus says, some are just ashamed of me. Some are just ashamed of Jesus. How can we be ashamed of Jesus? Look what he has done for us. How could we be ashamed? Jesus finishes with this statement in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. To taste death means to die. So Jesus was saying that some of his disciples would not die until they had seen the kingdom of God. Now there's many ways and many different ways to interpret this. But simply put, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. But when did the disciples see this? Obviously Jesus was talking before the second coming. And I really think that He's talking about what we'll be talking about next week, which is transfiguration. And really, that's all I'm going to say about that. We'll leave it there and pick it up next week. So four questions that we looked at today. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. What did he come to do? To suffer, be rejected, be killed, 
and be raised on the third day. What does he call us to do? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Why should we do it? So that we may have life and have it abundantly. Will you choose to take up your cross today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I know that this is a challenging passage, but this is our Lord and Savior speaking to us. Lord, I don't want anybody not to be with you for eternity. Lord, I pray that we would take this words from our Lord and Savior, from Jesus' own mouth, very seriously today. But we do so knowing that there is greater joy, that there is satisfaction. Lord, that there is a hope that you have given us. Lord, that will carry us through the valleys and the hard times. Because we are your children. And you love us dearly. Father, I pray today is in a moment we take time to be reminded of what Christ has done through communion. As we take this reminder with our family. Lord, I pray that we would honestly... honestly answer that question. Will we take up our cross and follow him? I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.